I'm more than de uh, delighted now to hand over to Dr. Uh, Carleen uh, uh, Fermin, who is going to uh, give us a fantastic uh, presentation on her experience and safe riding. Carleen. Good morning, everyone. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here with you today uh, to give you an overview of contextual safeguarding and how it helps us think about safeguarding being everybody's business, with particular reference to young people experiencing criminal exploitation, some of whom are being trafficked through county lines. Um, I head up the contextual safeguarding team at the University of Bedfordshire. We're a team of about um, 15 researchers who are developing contextual approaches to safeguarding children and young people around the country. Uh, the first full test case of contextual safeguarding was piloted in the London Borough of Hackney, and we continue to run a series of test site work across London boroughs, 17 of which applied to be test sites last year. London is definitely the locality where we're seeing the largest take-up of <coughs> contextual safeguarding. While I can't be with you for the whole morning because I have to go and speak in our Out of London test site this afternoon. Um, my colleague Katie Latimer, who is our lead researcher in London, in case we'll wave um, at the back, is here all day and can be and can speak to you. And I also pleasantly saw Shabaz Achi from Hackney, um, who has been the lead social worker in Hackney. Managing that work is also here. So there'll be plenty of people you can speak to in my absence, but I also hope to leave time for questions. So by way of overview of what I'm going to cover with you this morning, I want to give a brief insight into why we adopt a contextual approach to safeguarding, outlining how we understand this issue as being contextually driven, outline what the limitations are of traditional safeguarding and child protection responses to these issues before detailing what the components of a child protection approach would look like through a contextual safeguarding lens and the policy framework that underpins this, because contextual safeguarding was inserted into working together to safeguard children in 2018 and therefore is the statutory guidance, meaning we all must be thinking about its implications for our practice in any instance. For my entire presentation, I will be situating the issue of county lines as a child welfare and child protection issue, and I make no apology for that. The APPG on runaway and missing children in 2017 clearly stated that children who are exploited and groomed for criminal purposes are as equally deserving of support as children who are groomed and exploited in other ways. And a fundamental challenge we face is ensuring that across our services we are able to recognise that and recognise dual identity sometimes, that children can both be victimised and instigate harm, sometimes simultaneously, and we need to be able to respond to both of those things. It's not an either-or. But who are we trying to safeguard when we think about um, criminal exploitation? It's really important to frame this in relation to adolescence. And when I talk about adolescence, I'm taking quite a broad definition. I'm talking about children as they enter into adolescence from the age of 10 up, transitioning from primary to secondary, right through to young adulthood, 25. That is my definition of an adolescence, and it's the definition increasingly adopted by the UN. We use that definition because this is a period of significant change over that life course. It doesn't change at 18, even though a lot of our policy frameworks do. What happens in that period of 10 to 25 are a number of things. So the time in your life when you are motivated by risk in a very different way to when you are younger and when you are older, you experience it quite differently. I 
um, just kind of accepted this as a fact because psychologists routinely said it was, and I respected their work, and I'm not a psychologist, so I wasn't in a position to really critique it. And then I became a parent, and I couldn't wait to take my son to a fairground. I had loved them as a child myself and thought this was going to be a wonderful experience. And so when my son was 18 months, we set off to Brighton for the day, and we went on teacups that went around in a circle. And they went about the speed that a human spun the cup for you. So it was safe for an 18-month-old to be on this ride. About three times around the ride we went, I had to ask the man to stop the ride because I thought I was going to be sick and I needed to get off. And in that moment, two things dawned on me. The first was I had become my mother, and I remembered all of those occasions as a teenager where I would tell her she was the most boring person in the world, and why didn't she want to come on this roller coaster with me and hang upside down and not know if we were going to fall out, and I was never going to be that person, and when I had a child, I was going to go on every ride with them. I can safely guarantee I will not be going on roller coasters with my son when he's a teenager. But I also understood what all those psychologists have been saying, which was those butterflies in my tummy that I loved when I was 14, I hated when I was no longer 14. I'm not about to disclose my age to you. Um, so you experience it, <coughs> physically experience that sensation differently. Okay? So there is something that we do, and that means it's great. It's why a lot of young people pass their driving test quicker when they're 17. It's also why the insurance premiums are much higher, because they don't see risk in the same way. Although increasingly we understand that even that is socially driven, and that young people actually have more crashes when they're with their friends than when they drive on their own. Those that are older have more crashes when they drive on their own than when they're with their friends. Because the older we get, the more concerned we are about everyone else in the car. We drive a lot safer when we've got our friends with us. When we're younger, we're showing off to our friends, we're distracted, we're playing music. When we're driving alone, we're still quite nervous on the road, actually. We're still taking it easy. It's not that you just take all these risks wherever you are, but actually you're, you're engaging with your friends is different as well when you're a teenager, and I'll come on to that. It's also a time in your life where you're motivated by the weekend. On Friday, you care about Sunday. On Sunday, you care about Wednesday. And on Wednesday, you care about Saturday. And you're surrounded by people who are telling you that in five years' time, you're really going to regret the decision that you're making. You don't even know what five years' time is. You can't <coughs> comprehend what five years' time is. You know, you're 15, you're being asked to understand what a third of your life would mean all over again. You don't know, and you haven't developed the cognitive skills to do that, um, which is why you also engage with risk quite differently. You're also happy one minute and sad the next. This person's your best friend, you know you're so connected to them, they're basically your sibling, and then you hate them, and you're never speaking to them again, and you're never leaving your room, and your life is over. You're really struggling to emotionally regulate. You're crying, you don't know why you're crying, you're punching walls because you don't know why you're angry, and no one can understand what you're going through. This is puberty. This is your body developing and your brain developing and changing. And you just want to make all these decisions for yourself now anyway because you're 13 and you're an adult and you've lived your life. And you have this increasing desire for autonomy, to make decisions for yourself. Now, this is great. This is a time of opportunity. This is a time at which you're taking more personal responsibility, where you're feeling passionately about things, where you're willing to take risks, where you can be motivated by a short-term win. Wow, what a great place to be in your life, not jaded like we are now, constantly weighing up the long-term implications of everything and being so risk-averse. It's a time where you can really explore who you are. 
for the way we've organised our services, this is a complete nightmare. Because what we want are individuals who don't take risks, who understand the long-term consequences of their decision, who are emotionally stable and who do as we say. So we are confronted by adolescents in our services and think this is an absolute nightmare. No one wants to touch them, what a pain, rather than what an opportunity. We are doubly challenged by this because those that exploit our children are very adept at working with these dynamics of adolescence. For them, this is an absolute dream because I will give you a sense of risk, I will give you a short-term gain, there's your £10, there's your pair of trainers, there's your in. I will acknowledge your emotions as valid. <coughs> you do feel very intensely about how could that person have slighted you? Yes, go and see to them. Go and deal with them, it's unacceptable. Yes, you are right. And I will encourage you to make decisions that go against the advice of all the adults who care about you because you know best and you should make decisions for yourself. And therefore it's not surprising that in many cases those who exploit our children are better at working with adolescents than those who seek to protect them. Because we fight against the dynamics of adolescence and those who bring children work with them. And we need services who are better equipped to see this as an opportunity and work with the dynamics of adolescence so that young people can fulfil their potential. Now, in particular contexts, these dynamics of adolescence present a vulnerability. We know from research that young people encounter abuse in a range of contexts, and as they go through adolescence, those contexts move often beyond the family home. If we think about the family home, we know that young people who are exposed to domestic abuse young people who co-offend or are victimised alongside siblings, and young people who experience neglect, and a range of forms of neglect, inclu including affluent neglect, and we see that increasingly we're being called to, for example, speaking in international schools, where children are living in very financially stable and privileged settings, but whose parents are unavailable to them, and, and professionals struggling to support those children as well. These dynamics we do see in the backgrounds of some children who are being exploited. Um, disproportionately sometimes, and we see it in the background of young people who are doing the exploiting as well. But the thing we see most in many of these family homes is parents who have lost control of their children. That's how they will describe it. Professionally, we say this parent doesn't have the capacity to protect their child. They don't have the capacity to care and, or take control of that child. And often, we look to the parent and a deficit in the parent to explain that for us you have a mental health issue, you have a substance misuse issue, you have an abusive partner, and that's why there's no control in the family home. And for some young people, that is why the parent has lost control, or a significant factor. But for other parents, that is not why they have lost control. They have lost control because factors outside of the family home have become more powerful and have a stronger influence over the decisions that their child is taking, particularly during adolescence, if you hold all those other things in mind. And no context is more significant than a peer group. Young people's peers, generally during adolescence, mean more to them than anything else. And thankfully, for most parents, that will mean a battle about footwear and music taste for about 12 years, where young people insist or wearing shoes their parents hate, or blaring music out of their room that their parents can't stand. Because they are working out who they are, and they are aligning themselves to the norms of their friends, and even better if those norms clash with their parents. 
okay? For children who are being exploited, that is a much more concerning battle. If children are spending their time with peers where harmful attitudes to violence, criminality, consent are shared and normalised. And for some young people, those peers are adults, older than them. We see that in a range of studies into young people's experiences of abuse. Young people's experiences of intimate partner violence will show us that for young men, being part of a violent or aggressive peer group is more strongly correlated with them abusing their partners during adolescence than those young men living in violent families. It's peer violence that is more closely correlated. We know that young people commit offences in groups far more readily than they do on their own. For a range of offences, including sexual offending, weapon carrying, antisocial behaviour, young people will do these things in groups and particularly in the company of a particular child. And when that child's not there, the group doesn't behave like that. This is about group influence that we see being particularly prevalent in countries like the UK, America, Canada, New Zealand. We don't see an increase in peer influence like this in a number of other countries, including Singapore, China, India, a number of African countries, and even France. Okay, it's a whole other session, um, but it's important to note that in the UK we do see that dynamic, and therefore we must engage with it. And in order to do that, we have to understand the environments where those friendships form. Young people are forming friendships in school and neighbourhood settings. If those environments are protective, young people are given a better chance at forming safe and protective friendships, which can be one of the most important buffers against some of those harmful experiences within families that they may, that they may encounter. Friendship is not a bad thing. It's extremely important for our development. If young people are forming friendships in school environments where they're being exposed to bullying, problematic corridor culture, particularly the lifting of skirts, pinging of bra straps, sharing of images, um, non-consensual sharing of images, for example, and school environments that are being targeted for the purpose of recruitment into trafficking lines or other forms of exploitation, we have a school environment that cannot be protective and cannot support the development of protective friendship groups. It's the response to these issues and not just the issues themselves that we have to consider. Of course we will have bullying in a number of settings, but can we respond? Do young people believe that we can effectively safeguard and respond? Because if we can't, then it becomes normalised. We often fixate on the behaviour, we need to fixate more on how we respond to that behaviour. Likewise, in, the, in a neighbourhood setting, if young people are exposed to criminality, particularly robbery and street-based victimisation as they start to travel to school on their own. And in London, this is a significant issue because we have a fantastic transport system. So young people are getting onto the buses for free. Brilliant. Can they travel on them safely? If their phone is stolen, what do we do about it? If they report that theft, will they be safer? What will stop the phone from being stolen again? Or the bicycle at the park, or whatever it is. Young people experiencing harassment, physical and sexual harassment in public places, and we know things like sexual exploitation and criminal exploitation are associated with public spaces, parks, shopping centres, disused garages, alleyways, and so on and so forth, stairwells, we see come up a lot. We have to ask ourselves, what is it about these places and what can we do about them, which is what I'll come on to talk to you about. But in one case I reviewed, there was a rape on a stairwell involving six young people. 
All of the young people involved in that rape received custodial sentences, there were six of them. The victim in that case was moved away. Her mother moved with her. Her grandmother moved. Her aunt and cousin moved. Two young women who gave evidence to the prosecution were moved. A young man who helped her was moved. Everyone was moved. The stairwell remained a hot spot for rape for another six years, with other children using the same stairwell. No one ever intervened with the stairwell. If we want to know where our young people are at four o'clock, we probably all do. We probably know the takeaway shops they're outside, we probably know the parks they're congregating in, we know the bus terminuses where they gather. If we know where they are, so do those who want to groom them. Who has their eyes on them when they're there? Who is looking out for their welfare when they're there? Because if nobody is looking out for their welfare when they are there, then they are very easily accessible and you just offer as many as you can a free burger until one bites. Because nobody is going to disrupt you. It's free access. It's as easy as that. So we have to understand where these places are and we have to think about what we can do about them. So we recognise in our case studies, in our case review work and in our international research that adolescent vulnerability and different forms of extrafamilial harm including criminal exploitation, are contextual. We face a fundamental problem. If we frame these issues as abuse, which I did at the very start, and they are child protection issues, we look to our child protection system. Our child protection system reaches into children and families. That is its design. That is its intention. You refer a child into the system and their family, and that child is screened and assessed and a plan is put in place for them, and a set of interventions will be offered for that child and family. Okay? That is very much aligned to our framework. We have a system in place for when harm is caused by a parent, or when the parent does not have the capacity to be protective. And in cases of criminal exploitation, it is often the latter. Not solely, sometimes there is abuse within the family home that is directly associated to what's happening. But for the most part, it's the parent's capacity to be protected that means the state intervenes. And what we then hear from parents is that they're overwhelmed. Mother states there were things going on in Sarah's world that she didn't have access to. She described that Sarah was being controlled by others who were more powerful than her. Sean's mother had reported that her son's behaviour was out of control a year before his involvement in a murder. Sean's mother had called the police to report her son missing stating that she was struggling to manage his behaviour and that he was returning home with unexplained amounts of money and would pack a bag and stay with friends. This is what parents will be expressing to practitioners. And practitioners are frustrated because they refer their concerns in to children's services and are not always but often told we have considered the case and it hasn't reached a threshold for further work. Term it hasn't reached a threshold. If I got a pound for every time I heard that, I would be able to fund the contextual safeguarding programme for the rest of my life and not have to apply for any more grants. Threshold often ends up being the centre of the debate amongst professionals based on an anxiety about what we are going to do. We are very concerned about the life of this child. I'm talking about children referred in because they have been stabbed, not because we're worried that they're going to be stabbed, they've been stabbed. <laughs> and we've been told they've not reached a threshold. Why? Sometimes it's because the child, and I um, know counsel referred to it earlier, is 17 and a half. And so we've got six months left before they're out of children's services. What would a plan offer? 
just try to get them to just make some better lifestyle choices. And if they continue to do these things, it's kind of beyond our control. They're not under five. That's easier for us to manage. Sometimes, and often in the cases where we're looking at them, it's because the risk is outside. The risk is at that chain restaurant that gives free Wi-Fi. Okay? Or it's in the park where we've just had continuous problems. Or it's on that stairwell. And that is not where we've gone to do our visit following the referral. We've gone to the family home and we have spoken to mum and dad and everyone's appropriately concerned about what's happening and we've spoken to the other siblings and they don't seem to be directly affected and we've looked in the fridge and there's food there and the house is well kept. So we don't, we're not sure what an offer would be here. Okay. Sometimes it's because the young person is being abused by other young people. We don't know what we've mentioned about the child who's perpetrating. And it's been no further action in terms of police investigation, so it's all just an allegation, and we're not quite sure what we can offer, and it would be voluntary anyway, not statutory. And if they won't engage with us, then we're not quite sure what we could do here. And sometimes it's a whole entire space that is unsafe, not an individual. If it's an individual, we put a a restraining order on them, serve them a harbourer's warning, tell them to stay away from that child, and we've managed the risk. Actually, it's a little bit of information about that about the space coming from that person. That child's had their phone stolen. Then two weeks later, that child's had their phone stolen. Then three weeks later, that child's had their bike stolen. Then two weeks later, that child's been threatened with a knife. And each individual case isn't reaching a threshold. But if you looked at them collectively, that place is a place where children are at risk of significant harm. But we're not looking at it like that. Because when we look at our crime statistics, these are not things being reported. So if you want to look for your hot spots in terms of crime reports, they're not going to take you to those places because children are not reporting these experiences of crime. So contextual safeguarding seeks to rectify the gap between the contextual dynamics of exploitation and the child and family lens that has been traditionally adopted by our child protection response to abuse. It does this through four domains says that a contextual safeguarding system would need to target the context in which the abuse is occurring. Sounds obvious, but it's the, that target then broadens the scope of what we initially thought uh, our child protection work was. We still do this through the lens of child welfare, and that's the second domain. We do place-based work. A number of you will be aware of place-based work through community safety and policing. Okay. Contextual safeguarding builds on that, but just doing our community safety work will not do contextual safeguarding. We are responding to increase safety, not solely to reduce crime, and we are not solely using our crime and antisocial behaviour statistics to prioritise where we go with this work. Sometimes a response to these issues will not involve the police. It will involve youth workers, teachers, community groups, parents, other young people. Sometimes it will involve police, sometimes it will involve housing, sometimes it will involve rubbish collectors. This is a much broader response to child welfare and we are responding in this way because this is the abuse of our children, not because it is or is not a crime. And the earlier we intervene, the less it is about crime and the more it is about welfare. But to do that, we need partnerships between those who have traditionally led on child protection, social care, children's services staff, and those who have not. Uh, I visited a 
here a couple of years ago and I was blown away by some work, and I know it's on another slide but I'll mention it here, um, being done by rubbish collectors. There were sexual assaults occurring in a number of parks in that part of Queensland and there were a lot of parks. The geography meant there were kind of parks running on the backs of lots of different streets. No, no foot flow going through, no, no pavements. Uh, those forensic psychologists tasked with working with a handful of the kids who had been convicted went in to look at what was going on in the parks and found the only people actually there were rubbish collectors. None of them were rubbish collectors. So now, every morning, those clinical psychologists get an email from the rubbish collectors detailing where they've collected evidence of substance misuse, alcohol consumption or sex happening in the parks. And then they target the outreach work based on the information from the rubbish collectors. It means they haven't had to deploy police across the parks to find out where people are going. But it also means that those who are already there recognise the role that they can play in safeguarding and are very proud of the contribution that they make. They already collect that information anyway, they're just using it for another purpose. And we have waste management services who collect that information at the moment in a number of our local authorities. Okay? but are not necessarily seeing that as a potential route to safeguarding. We can't tell people what their role is, but we have to find out who the partners are in those places and speak to them about what they think their role could be. Because the rubbish collectors came up with that idea themselves, because they already knew they had that information. They just needed to frame it in a different way. So who are our partners? And how are we measuring success? If we only measure success by individual counts, 30 children referred in for criminal exploitation and 15 are now in education. We won't know whether we've created safety for the collective who were impacted in that locality. We need to know, is the park any safer? Is the high street any safer? Is that bus terminus any safer? So how are we even measuring our concern? Do we know in our boroughs where our risk is? Do we know which shops we have concerns about, which places we have concerns about, and are we checking whether that's got any better through how we've spent our money? Have we commissioned interventions to address that? Or have we just commissioned interventions to work with five of the kids who are vulnerable at the bus stop? And then those five move away, has that changed the vulnerability at the bus stop? Probably not. We're just going to have a new five who are now vulnerable at the bus stop. So we create a lot of victim vacuums when we move kids on, unless we address the root cause what's happening in that place in the first place. But that, colleagues, does expand what we mean by capacity to safeguard. We continue to ask about parental capacity, but we're also talking about our collective capacity to safeguard children and young people across services, not just those who are traditionally charged with that duty. Because if a child's phone is stolen on a bus, it is not their parents' capacity to safeguard that is being undermined. It is the people who run our transport services. So safeguarding being everybody's business moves us from being about making referrals, and we still do, to creating safe places. And recognising that peer relationships are central to those safe places. How are young people supporting and working with each other? In this map, uh, the 11-year-old in the middle was moved away when she was being exploited. Everyone in blue around her were exploiting her. When she was moved, the ones at the bottom filled the gap. The exploitation did not stop. 
And as I mentioned in, in closing, contextual safeguarding is in working together to safeguard children and young people. It's in chapter one, paragraphs 33 and 34, clearly stating that we need a plan to address the environmental factors associated with extrafamilial harm, and so we need to be thinking about that. And there are specific text changes that these slides, and I'm happy for you to have them afterwards, further embed that as a requirement for how we respond. I hope that's been a helpful overview for you and a helpful challenge. The slides I have, but I won't go through, um, just detail all the resources that are available on our network free of charge and some more kind of active examples that I'm happy for you to have. And I hope we can work together to create a contextual safeguarding system that reaches into all the contexts in which we know our children are exploited. Thank you for your time. Um, Colleen has offered to uh, take some questions. Um, we, we, we have got about 10, 10 minutes or so to ask any questions. So if anybody's got anything that they'd like to ask now or any comments, I found it absolutely fascinating. And um, particularly, it's good to have here today children's services leads and specialists, but also community protection. Because from what I'm taking from that, it's a joint effort. It's not just about children's services. So any questions you may have or any comments? Would you like to say wh which borough you're from? Um, I'm Latouja Kulkani Johnson, I'm from Richmond and Walsall. I'm working at the Cal and I'm blown away. <laughs> what you're describing is a public health approach. It's about starting early and putting in place the wider determinants <coughs> that will help children thrive, grow up safe, and achieve. Yeah. So it's so heartwarming. <laughs> Thank you. No, good. No, no. And I mean, absolutely. I think a lot of us are very much supportive of a public health approach. There's been a lot of discussion about that. I hope contextual safeguarding offers one way for people to think about how you would practically ground that in service design um, and bring together all of these different ideas that have kind of been floating around. And I very much concur that it is about how you bring together community safety work and kind of children's services, child protection work. And it's really important to grapple with those conversations in boroughs because everyone works a little bit differently and we're seeing real variation in that type of partnership locally and health colleagues play a critical role in kind of thinking about how you bring those partners together so that we don't have a clash of agendas. In the worst case scenario, what we sometimes see is a shared agreement that a housing estate, for example, is a concern, but a non-partnership approach to address that, so then we might get a very heavy enforcement response in that locality, driven via a community safety agenda, which can undermine attempts at a child welfare approach if it's not appropriately coordinated. It's not that we never enforce, but we do need some shared objectives around this and some shared outcome measures. Otherwise, we do see a kind of battle sometimes which is unhelpful for progressing the agenda. Any other questions? Then turn the front and then load it back. Sorry, pardon me, I'm Ian Jenkins from Ealing. Um, schools' roles in this, the schools' dilemma of students who lend themselves to exclusion um, and then never get back in there, um, and it, 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 it's just, they're, they're on a highly to nothing, really. Uh, how, how do you reconcile that in amongst all of this? Yeah, absolutely, thank you for that. Uh, we have done a lot of work with schools, and actually we run a contextual safeguarding practitioners network, and schools are our largest member, teachers are our largest member.
November, we have a number of resources for schools to self-assess what they're doing internally and have developed approaches to school assessment and intervention. The school environment itself needs considering, and we have worked with schools who have talked to students about their safety within school and on the journey to and from school and what that means to them as a collective, the school culture itself. We've also worked with some fair access panels where decisions are being made about movement across schools and kind of management across schools to uh, challenge each other around exclusion decisions because even if you have to exclude, and let's say for argument's sake you have to exclude this child, the exclusion itself is not an intervention. What is left behind in your school once that child leaves? How do you address what led up to that exclusion to prevent another exclusion down the line? And too often we see the exclusion as, breathe now, that problem's gone, rather than thinking, well, what's it left behind? And what message has it given to the wider student body? I also see some very concerning practices around exclusions and um, kind of managing, uh, kind of giving education off site that we need to discuss and, um, and debate, such as children who have been stabbed not being allowed back because they now present a risk. This is horrendous approach to our young people and that requires significant debate and, and thought through because that not only is a problem for that child, but what does that tell other students who are there? around the ability of staff to protect them. But this is a partnership issue because on the other side, I see schools who are struggling. And what we need are people to work collectively to think, how do we create safety for you in your school and around your school? Because it's often the journey to and from where children feel very unsafe, not just within. And the lady with glasses. I think the gentleman in the front. Oh, thank you. Um, it was a great uh, presentation and a lot of uh, research done on this. And uh, I'm Krishna Suresh from Harrow and the Portfolio Order for Community Cohesion and Crime. But there are a lot of questions that you put towards uh, uh, 
the audience and others. One of them says, uh, who is looking after their welfare, the young people's welfare, when they are at the bus stop or at the alleyway or at, um, in, in the parks and so forth. So uh, I'm, I'm asking you back, uh, who is responsible? Yeah. Well, we are all are. We all are responsible, and I think that there are a number of things. There are the businesses, for example, who are there. There are our council services who are there, like I say, street cleaners and so on and so forth, who are already there. There are our residents, and in some areas what we have done is engage residents, and we've done assessments of um, localities, and Shannon will be able to speak to people about this in the break if you want. Resident surveys, not around crime, but around child welfare. Um, and, and their approach to young people and how they feel about young people and engage those residents in the planning around the response to that and thinking about them as community guardians. This is about community guardianship. All of us are potential community guardians. What falls out of this is potential community guardianship training and we've seen that being delivered to business leaders but also to residents. We've seen parents go out in shifts after school when they're not working and then another group of parents aren't working the next evening spend time, we need to think about more investment in our detached youth workers. We have seen areas who are working towards a contextual safeguarding approach reinvest in detached youth work. This is not about flooding those places with the police. This is about how we, and ultimately, respond to those children by seeing them as children. Because the problem is, we've got a lot of people in those places, and young people will say they often go to these restaurants because there are adults there. They're at a distance, but they're there, so if something's going wrong, they feel like they can maybe go and talk to somebody. Um, but everyone sees them as a nuisance. So if I'm looking at these children at the bus stop as a nuisance, then I have not got my eyes out for how vulnerable they might be. If I saw a three-year-old wandering around, I would slowly see them as vulnerable. And if anyone tried to walk off with that child, I would be like, that doesn't look right. But if I see a 15-year-old, I just think, oh, I'm making so much noise, why are they screaming, why are they playing their music out, about headphones on, you know, so I hate getting the bus at 3.30. I'm not wondering who is that person offering them a free burger. I'm not looking at them as vulnerable. So a lot of the engagement with residents and with business owners and so on is to recognise the vulnerability of our teenagers and to think about the role they can play, not jumping in in a knife fight, because that wouldn't be what we would encourage, but just talking to young people, because if I'm talking to a young person anyway, just generally, I'm giving the message that I've got my eyes out for them. And so if you were then watching, you're thinking, actually, I can't approach them. I think it's in Staffordshire, they did training with park gardeners around this, in the parks, to just talk to young people. Not disrupt a fight, but just talk to them when they're in the park. Just, how are you? Whatever. You know we run this club, you want to get involved. So if you're hanging about the park and you want to start approaching them, you know, actually, the gardeners, they're all... They're watching out for them, they're talking to them. It's not that easy for me to just wander up and start initiating a conversation. That's the type of community guardianship we need in our public places. Thank you very much, uh, Colleen. Um, can we show our appreciation? <laughs> um, now